Uh, hey, welcome to the Old Man and the Kid podcast. I am Jeff the Old Man. That is Paul. He's the kid. And we keep setting the bar higher and higher on this show. We've got an American record holder with us tonight. And I'm going to say that again. An American record holder is on our show tonight. Nick Corey's with us. Nick, thanks for joining us, man. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. Thanks for having me on. It's good to meet you both. Yes. Did I get the name right? Is it Corey? Curry. Curry. Sorry, Nick Curry. All right. <laughs> Right on. There, we go. Right there you go. <laughs> Where's home for you, Nick? Uh, I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona. Yeah, that sounds about right. The Mecca. Yep. yep. Born and raised here. So it's a, yeah, I, I was just thinking about this the other day. Arizona is like a surprising pocket, like big pocket of the ultra running community. Um, okay. Until Zach Bitter moved just a couple days ago, actually. Uh, almost every single like American ultra record, uh, from 50 miles up to 24 hours was here. Meaning, wow. uh, Jim Walmsley lives here who has the 50 mile hundred K, uh, Zach Bitter has the hundred mile. I now have the 24 hour. And then on the women's side, Camille Heron, who's down in Tucson, you know, near Tucson has almost all of them. So Arizona's kind of, I never would have associated with that a couple of years ago, but we've got quite a few really good ultra runners here. It's like a hotbed of it. So, I mean, there's, there's something to it. It's the, uh, the training, the altitude, the, the combination of all of it, the, the varying terrains. What do you, what do you attribute that to? I think that's a big piece of it. Like, you know, Arizona, most people think of it for the summer because it's hot as hell here. Uh, (laughs) but we have year round running. The winter's absolutely beautiful. Uh, and even, you know, Flagstaff, where a lot of like marathoners and ultra runners are, uh, it's only a couple hours from Phoenix, you get way up high. So the summers are actually great there. Uh, and so, yeah, you're within a few hours of a lot of places, anywhere from California to Colorado, to even the, the beach in Mexico is four hours away from my house. Uh, so wow. like a, it's a great launching bed for tons of other places. And then like the winter here is just like right now is unbelievably awesome. And then summer it's a the heat is a great excuse to go somewhere else and then even then if you train through it and can handle it like once the, the heat goes away you feel like you you have superpowers because it just it's kind of like altitude where it helps you adapt and then get stronger and then when you go anywhere else without that you're just so much stronger than you would have been yeah wow i mean that's um that explains a lot why why there's so much talent there. i mean of course the talent is and on the hard work but the, the conditions kind of kind of, you know, help that along. You said the winter right now down there, you, what you call it? Awesome. Is that what you said? Yeah. I, the temperatures, I don't know, lows are like 40 and highs are 65 or 70. Wow. I'm in central Nebraska, polls in central Iowa. Hey man, have you ever heard anybody refer to the winter here as awesome? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, uh, I want to live somewhere where the winter is awesome. Yeah. So for uh, Nick, you mentioned a lot of those uh, big names. Do you do a lot of your training with with any of those people or do you just kind of do your own thing? Explain that a little bit. I mostly do my own thing. I, I did train here and there with Zach and Nicole, his wife. Um, and But mostly it's, you know, between training and working a full-time job plus uh, I, I don't really have that much free time, so to speak. So even just the the prospect of driving 15 or 30 minutes to meet someone, because uh, I'm kind of out on the edges of the Phoenix area, uh, usually is more than I care to do any given day. Gotcha. I mean, what, uh, what, what's a typical training week look like for you volume wise in terms of time? Yeah, uh, last year, I averaged right about 100 miles a week. So that's somewhere between 15 and 20 hours usually. Okay. And how much, how much gain would be in a hundred mile week for you? How much out or how much vertical gain would you get? I don't even track it. Uh, last, that last year, cause I was training for so much flat was probably low. I mean, I still do quite a bit of trails. Like even if I'm do, training purely for flat roads, I love the trails. I couldn't not run them. So I guess I'm still doing five or 10,000 most weeks. And then like this coming year, I'm training for hard rock. So I'll boost that up to, I don't know, 20,000 plus. Oh, wow. Great. And then you're saying like 15 hours a week, typical training week, it's a part-time job. Yeah, for sure. Plus all the like maintenance and, you know, strength training and all that other stuff, you know, even when it's only a little bits, it adds up. And usually, you know, when I'm trying to run 120 to 150 mile weeks, uh, I need that much more maintenance to keep myself healthy. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, sure. You put in that extra volume, so you got to do the self care to let you put in that little extra volume. Yep. Do you do that strength stuff and uh, and the stretching? Is that all on your own? Do you have a coach for that? Uh, so I have a coach, uh, James Benet, who's also local here, uh, and he's. I mean, I've been friends with him forever. He was like one of the like back before ultra running was really much of a thing. He ran his first ultra at nine years old, a hundred miles at like eleven. So he's been around forever and, you know, I, I ran my first ultra at 17 and, you know, my brothers and I felt young, but we knew this other guy was super young. And so he's been around forever. He knows anyone and everyone. And then I just love that he like personalizes his coaching more than anyone I know, meaning like he does the opposite of trying to scale his uh, ability to coach. So he like will crew his runners almost every weekend. It seems like sometimes, you know, on just on training runs or on races, he's like driving out to meet him and cheer him on. Like he really goes out of his way to give everyone the personalized touch. And for me, like we've just known each other so long, even before he ever coached me, that he understands exactly what I need, what's in my head, what I'm going to try to do wrong. Uh, what's going to help me <laughs> better, you know, in very unique ways to me. And that really helps out. And he crewed me the last eight hours of the 24 hour race and was helping me solve problems that I don't know that many people would have been able to do the way he did. Uh, so yeah, yeah, he's been around. I, I, where do we come from? I think I got on a tangent there. Oh, that was it. You were just asking about the coach. I mean, that was, that was a great, oh, yeah. I, I like that line. He, he knew what I, what he knew I was going to do wrong. <laughs> I need somebody out there on my side like that. Hey, you're going to screw this up later. Let me get out in front of that for you. <laughs> Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So in terms of like the, the extra stuff though, like he, he will give me things, especially when I ask for them. So this year I knew one of the things I needed was more strength training. So he would give me different programs to try. Uh, he coaches through uh, McMillan coaching and they had a bunch of videos that he sent me, but then even that, like some of them wasn't, they weren't clicking. So we just started trying other things. I kind of figured out things that wouldn't uh, slip on a busy day, you know, that, that I could do even when I was busy, even when I didn't have the, the willpower for it, it was easy enough to throw in. So I was doing it regularly. Uh, and then a lot of the PT stuff, I, I have a physical therapist that I have a good relationship with. Uh, I go to him on demand, uh, whenever I have an issue, uh, the guy I have it's Spooner physical therapy, he does dry needling, which mm -hmm. if you haven't heard of it, uh, you should know what it is. Uh, and I don't know if I recommend it because it's I've had it done. Yeah. And the muscles that seem to need it the most for me seem to be the worst ones to get dry needled. It's just like searing, terrible pain. Uh, is it feet? Uh, mine are like calves, hips, glutes, and they just end up real sore. Like basically for anyone who hasn't done it, it's like acupuncture needles that they stick into muscle knots. And so you can think of it as doing similar things to deep tissue massage, except where deep tissue massage really struggles. You know, you're like you're, someone's ramming their elbow in, really trying to find it. And they're going through like three layers of unrelated muscle just to get to the thing that's having a problem. Dry needling, that's where it shines because it goes straight through any healthy tissue. Like you barely even notice. You're like, are you sure you're doing anything? Like there's a needle in me. And then suddenly it hits that muscle knot and it just like flips out. <laughs> And it's extremely painful for a brief moment and you're sore for a day or two. And then, uh, like the muscle knots are basically gone until you do something else to screw it up and bring them back. So <laughs> it's like you say, when that needle's in there and it's and they're kind of fishing around when it hits it though, there's no doubt. I mean, man, there's light sirens, fireworks, the whole thing goes off. I mean, there's, you know, there's, I remember the, the physical therapist doing that to me. And she was just watching my eyes. And when it hit that spot, you know, then you're okay. That was it. I've never had done it, you know, routinely like that. You know, I had just a real severe issue once and had it done. So how often would you have treatment like that? Is that a weekly, monthly thing or just as needed? It's as needed, which is everything from like, usually it's at least once every two to three months. If things are going well, like this whole fall, I think I, it was about three months between sessions because I, I was just doing enough on my own and wasn't running into big problems. Uh, but then there's been other years where just everything seems pissed off. Uh, every time I've tried to ramp up training and I know I need peak training, things are really getting knotted up, messed up, really struggling. And I've been in there every week for two months straight. That's tough. To, that's tough to keep going back for that, but you know, you need it. 
Uh, yeah, it, it's one of those things. It hurts, but it hurts less than what will happen if I don't. Mm-hmm. So um, let's talk about the the twenty four hour race. Yeah, uh, where where do you want to start? Where was it? It was in Phoenix, Arizona, at Central High School. Okay. So the race is called Desert Solstice, and it's an elite invitation. Also, you there's qualifying standards. And if you hit the, the higher standards, then you can request entry and you'll get it. And then there's lower standards, which are still quite high, still like national class times. And you can request entry. And then the basically the better applicants from the B list will get in as well. And so like, the A list is to give an idea for men. I think it's something like 14 hours flat for a hundred mile. Oh. And the B standard, I think is 16 hours. So, uh, wow. Yeah, that's that's cracking. Cracking. Yeah. And yep. so you're at you're at a you said a high school? Yeah, so it's a high school, 400 meter all weather track. There's a maximum of 30 people that get let into the race. This year, I believe 25 or 26 started. And most people are going after 24 hours and everyone is entered in the 24 hour race, but some people are only going after a 100 mile split. Okay. But you're going after the record. Yeah, yeah, I was going after the record. Not, it, not many people knew it because I was not confident at all about it. It actually, I was very confident that it was pretty unrealistic. Uh, but I thought there was a glimmer of hope. Uh, so I, I, I've been running these kind of races. How I've been doing ultras since 2005, so 16-ish years now. Um. And the, the first race I did was a 12 hour run. The second ultra was a 24 hour. So I've kind of always been into this. Uh, I got real interested in 24 hours when I found out there was a, a world championship and you could qualify for the U S national team. Mm-hmm. And when I first heard about it, I think the qualifying times or the distances for men were something like 130 to 140 some miles in 24 hours, which yeah. is, is a, a young cocky kid seemed like, Oh, I, I, I could do that. No problem. Like you, <laughs> and you're like, that's only, you know, 10 minutes a mile. Right. No big deal. Um, yeah. And so like my first several attempts at 24 hours didn't go very well. Uh, the first one that I did pretty well at was in 2010, I ran 136 and yeah. I made the team because they used to give the top, like three of the six spots to the top three at the national 24 hour championships. And the year I ran it, just I happened to get third because everyone else fell apart. Okay. Uh, the distance itself normally wouldn't have made it, but because I was in the top three, I got an auto spot. Uh, and so at that point, at that point, you know, forever, I'm like, well, I can make the national team. Uh, but then every time I tried after that, the team kept getting more and more difficult to make. Uh, I made it again in 2012, but and then actually ran in 2013 at the World Championships. And then took, took a long break, like five years break from 24 hours because they're awful because <laughs> they're just flat and repetitive. And I'd rather go around mountains half the time. Um, and so I, I stayed away from them for a while. And then 2018 came back, ran Desert Solstice, qualified again with 155 miles and then got bumped it's the last race that could qualify. So they take the top six. And when I qualified, I was number five. And then by the time that the qualification window closed, two more people had beaten me and knocked me off the list. Uh, And did you say 155 miles at this one? Yeah. I mean, you said that kind of fast. I want to say that a little bit slower. So we're talking about a 24 hour race around a track, (laughs) 155 miles. All right. Holy shit. All right. So that was yeah. 2018. That was 2018. And that I, I knew was my limit at the time. And I say that because I had done it, one of those, you know, I trained and done the best training in my life. Like no question. I was more fit than I'd ever been. I had a perfect race execution. I negative split by something like one mile, meaning like I paced perfectly I was, I had this huge kick the last half hour trying to catch the person in front of me and, uh, almost caught him. And he, every time I put in a surge to catch him, he would look back cause you're on a track and respond. And I was like a hundred meters behind him at the very end. Uh, oh. 
in a 24 hour race. Yeah. 100 meters. Yeah. That's insane. Nuts. Talk a little bit about um, the negative splitting. Cause I, I don't know if I read something, but like, is that like your strategy? Like you try to negative split these like really long races? Yep. So that's kind of, I, I suppose it's becoming my thing. I think I'm trying to make it a thing because I have actually, I've been thinking about this for more than 10 years now. Uh, the whole idea is like, you look at marathons and below and it's pretty well accepted. Like the optimal strategy is you want like even or slightly negative splits. Like everyone's trying to go out for a marathon and then just barely negative split at the end if they can. That means you paced it perfectly. There's no one saying like, oh, it's fine if I slow down like a minute or two a mile the last several miles. That's like a, like, that's a blow up. That's a failure. Like people do that and they hate it and they want to do better next time. But at ultras, it's like everyone accepts that is that's inevitable. Like there's no other way to do it. Like, of course, you're going to slow down. It's such a long distance. Like you're going to get tired no matter what you do. And, you know, like I've tried to look and there's, I've maybe found five or six cases of people that have negative split, uh, particularly in hundred plus mile races. Uh, and half the time it was like accidental for like something went really wrong the first half. And so they didn't even mean to do that, but it just happened. Uh, but there's uh, several of them are very notably good performances. And so I had been thinking about this forever and I really started, I, I decided I'm going to figure out the answer to the question. Like, is it just fundamental that you can't really negative split in an ultra? It's unrealistic. You're going to get tired, all that stuff. Or is it that like no one's ever tried and it, it, it's this hidden thing that's going to be massively like helpful. And then once someone does it, everyone does it. Like the, the other day I was thinking about it and the, the closest analogy I can come up with is three pointers in the NBA. You know, you have Steph Curry who like three pointers, it's not that they weren't a thing, but it wasn't a strategy to try to make as many as are now in the game. And, you know, you, once he deliberately practiced and got really, really good at it and like turned it into a science of how to do it suddenly, like every team, you know, you can't ignore it. It's now a fundamental part of the sport. And it's not that everyone's always trying to shoot three pointers and that's the only strategy, but it is one that you can't really get around existing anymore. And like, I think it's proven effective. I mean, you know, the same thing, it's proven effective. Yep. So that's what I'm trying to do with negative splits. It's like, especially hundred plus mile ultras is I've, I've been trying to practice it and figure out the nuance of it and like, what's the strategy and what's the benefits and all that. And the more I've done it, the more I've convinced myself that it is really, really helpful and good. And it's, it's not something unrealistic. It just, it takes a lot of practice and understanding. And it, like, it, it's taken me five years to really do what I'd say is perfecting it or pretty close to perfecting it. So when we're talking about negative splits over a 155 mile race, just so I'm understanding this, are you talking about, I mean, each mile can't be progressively faster over 155 miles, right? No, no. Like my definition is you take the first half of the race, you take the second half of the race and is the second half either faster or you covered more distance. Got it. Okay. So you're negative splitting it half, half and half. Yeah. So yeah, like yeah, I do the exact opposite. <laughs> if you average the first half, you average the second half. Then yeah. it's half faster, meaning you it, it, at the end of the day you picked it up the second half compared to your starting pace. Yeah, and so we're, we're the exact opposite of that, right, Paul? It is true. I usually take it out in like eleven. I hours think the term is balls to the wall, like right off the bat. Like it's crazy. Yeah, it's bad. But I I would like to try a negative split. I mean, it, it's working for the best in America right here. So. It's, it's yeah. working. Yeah, so, that, I mean, yeah. you know, at the end of that 155 miler again at, at 18, you know, when you're tracking that guy down, you're 100 meters behind him. And you said the last half hour that you had a kick. Yeah. What, what does that look like in terms <laughs> of actual pace where I'm where, where I can relate? So, I mean, can, what, what pace are you kind of monitoring or, or, or going? And then when you have that kick, what does it what does it go to? And yeah. we're talking a half hour left of this 24 hour race. Yeah. So the, the, the whole race I'd been averaging, it was something like nine fifteen a mile roughly. And then the last, like, I think starting an hour and a half left, I started picking it up and 
I got down to, it was definitely seven something a mile. I think it was like seven thirty or seven forty five pace. Man. And then the guy you're catching had that too. Yeah. Every time I put in a surge, he would see me surging and kick equally hard. And I had been, I had, when I started kicking, I was like a mile and a half behind him or something. And so by the time I was almost catching him, I was running low again. Like I hit my peak, I think about a half hour from the finish. And then I was, I was trying to hold on at my faster pace, but slowing from the the fastest I had been running. Um, and so he, he, who had been fading, but otherwise running a lot slower than me had just enough left to hold on the last, like, you know, 15 minutes that I was, I was getting within, I think a lap of him 15 or so minutes out and he just put everything he could into it. So yeah, it is as exciting as you can get at a 24 hour, which is not normal. That's that's closer than five K's are normally. Yeah. How, How many planned stops do you have in a race like that? Or do you? Oh, zero. Uh, the, the porta potty is the only thing that I like know is inevitable to stop for at some point. Uh, and even that I have gotten more strategic about, uh, cause I spend, I don't know, five plus minutes in it during the whole race, which doesn't sound like much, but, uh, actually I, I made some aggressive adjustments to my strategy around that after that race, because I realized, you know, this guy that's 120 meters ahead of me at the end, that's essentially one P break. Mm-hmm. And so I started asking myself, how can I skip P breaks? I know a way. Uh, I, I learned to use a wide mouth Gatorade bottle. Okay. <laughs> I, I now save three to five minutes in 24 hour races. You're doing that on the go? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> All right. Hey, man, to any, by any means necessary. Yeah. So th- this, this really kind of segues into this year's race when I said, uh, like. Before you start, I never thought peeing in a Gatorade bottle while running would segue into anything. <laughs> let's go. <laughs> so. Like from that year, like I said, like I knew at the time it was my max and, you know, I thought, I I don't know, like if I train harder, I could probably push it up above 160. And so that's what I did from like after the 2018 race, 2019 and 2020, uh, I just kept training, figure I'd get better fitness. I ran desert solstice in 2020, uh, with two more years of improvements. I came back with a bunch more like refinements to try to get time that I didn't know I'd lost like that. Uh, I switched over to like the, the Nike super shoes, which I think have made a difference, but took a lot of getting used to for that long of a distance. Cause they're just so unstable and high off the ground. Uh, I had experimented off and on with like a fat adapted, uh, diet for a lot of things, which can help with ultras nutrition wise. And really got that down and that helps just in general at ultras once you have the hang of it. And so I did all these other improvements. I came back in 2020. Uh, I was pacing for about 167 and was on pace until 19 hours and was starting to negative split just like I'd done in 2018. Uh, and then absolutely crumbled, just like fell off the face of the earth. Like within from hours like 19 to 20, I went from doing like 208 per lap, 207 per lap to like, I was at a complete stop for almost an hour, <laughs> just sat down. I, I had taken the lead in the race and the second place guy had also fallen off the face of the earth and completely stopped. And my quads, when, when I went down, it's because my quads They'd been hurting since earlier in the race. I think it was eight hours into it. And then all of a sudden they just refused to function. Like the muscles were not firing. Like if I tried to run, I could not really. And so then I'm I'm like, I'm doing serious damage here. I'm just going to stop. I have the lead by quite a bit. Uh, The second place is not even moving either. So I'm just going to call it and save it for another day. You know, ultras, they can be really damaging. I don't need to like end my career to be stubborn about finishing, you know, and getting a few extra miles. Uh, and then second place started move. He started stumbling around the track, I'd say, because I think it was taking him about 16 or 18 minutes per quarter mile lap when he started moving again. 18 minute laps around a track. Yeah. 
like barely, like not walking, like barely crawling. Uh, and then he went from like 16 to like 14 and I was doing the math. I'm like, he's still not going to catch me. And then he got like 14 to 12, maybe. And then I'm looking and like, if he moves at this pace, he's going to catch me right at the very end, like three hours from now when the race is over. And then he moved down just a bit. I'm like, now he's going to beat me if I don't move at all anymore. So I got out there and I started doing a 15 minute lap and then he got a little faster. So I had to get a little faster and then he got a little faster. So I had to get faster and then he started jogging. So I had to start jogging and we just kept inching down. And it was like this, you know, a uh, game of chicken where he had escalate a little and I had to escalate so I could keep my lead. And we kept going faster and faster until the last hour he was doing seven something a mile. I was doing low eights. Uh, what? God. Get out. So again, I, I seem to have a thing for making 24 hours exciting. So if I have any claim to fame, I hope it's that, that 24 hours don't have to be boring. I guess not. Not as long as Nick Curry's in it. Yeah. So he was, he was definitely catching me, but I held long enough and then got the win by about a mile, but I ran 155 again. When, when he was, you know, and you guys were playing that game of chicken, were you on the same lap then? Or did you have a little buffer? No, I had a couple miles on him at that point. Okay. And so I, I wasn't trying to match his speed. He, he was catching me the whole rest of the race. It's just, I was trying to let him go, you know, I was trying to keep fast enough that he wouldn't catch too many laps on me. Yes. Yeah, you just had to be fast enough to finish ahead. Yeah. Cause yeah, I, got, I, I still like that energy. I, I could feel every lap I was doing, it was not doing good things to my legs. Like they were, they were damaged and they were only getting more damaged every lap I did. So um, what was the impact afterwards? You said you got your 155. Did you have any any implications from that? Like it definitely took several weeks to really recover, and probably a month or two to get back to feeling normal. Uh, but I, I do think I didn't push through the stuff that would have done permanent type damage. So I think I made the right call. Yeah, for sure. And what year was, was that race? That was 2020. So that was a year ago. Um, and so, yeah, with that, I was on pace for 167, ran 155, which means like probably the 167 was a good bit too fast. I think I may, like if I paced better, maybe 162 to 164, if I'd avoided the blow up by not going so fast. Like I remember even eight hours in, I was thinking like, I'm feeling a bit more, like more on edge than I should this early in the race. Um, but with that, it kind of got the bug in my head. I'm like, well, what if I fix the quad thing? Um, probably something else will go wrong, but what if I figure out what that other thing is and then whatever the next thing is. And I, I actually get to 167. Uh, and then like, what if I can make, uh, you know, get a little bit better than that, get a little stronger, work on the other things that can give me some extra bumps and hit 170. And then like, by the time the number 170 was in my head, like the American record was 172 and a half. And then it's like, well, <laughs> I mean, it's not that much further than that. And so that's kind of where the crazy idea started. Like knowing, you know, those, like I am so late in my career. It's not like someone who busted onto the scene and continually has big jumps to make. Like I've been trying to refine this for so long. And then even the last five years, as I've worked harder and harder, like you're, you should be hitting diminishing returns. And the only way to avoid diminishing returns is like find more and more ways to get better. And 2018, I had done so many things to get to what seemed like my limit at the time. And then 2020, two more years, you know, maybe 10 more miles max of ability. And then to ask myself to make a, a leap even bigger than that in just one year. Uh, that's where I, when I say it's unrealistic, like I'm, I get real analytical about it and it just didn't seem like something that should be possible. And so like January last year after the race, when I started thinking about, well, what could I actually do? And I got that goal stuck in my head. Like, what if it's possible? Like, how could it be possible? Every single time I looked at it and looked at where I was at and looked at what I should be able to do, like the answer was always the same, which is I, I'm not there. Like it's, it's impossible right now. And every time that I ran into that, I asked myself, well, how can I make it just a little bit more possible? Like what's one more thing that I can get a fraction of a percent better at. And then I would go try to figure out something new. And then that thing, I would try to push as far as I can go with it. 
And then I would reevaluate. And then I'd say, I need to find something like what's one more thing, even if it only gets me a tiny bit closer. And so I just did this over and over again, finding more and more things, and then taking each of those things and trying to get better and better at them. And so I ended up, I, I, uh, like if I just make up a number, I think I probably did 50 different things all towards getting a tiny bit better with each one. And by like a month and month out, five weeks out, I did this hundred K training run on a track and like I ran seven Oh six just by myself. And with that, I'm like, I think I have the fitness required. Now I just have to hope all the other things can actually get me to last 24 hours. Cause that's the other thing. Tons of guys who are way better than I will ever be attempt 24 hours and they all crumble and fall apart because the 24 hour it's, it's not just like the fitness, the physical, um, it's not even like the mental toughness. It's like race management and all kinds of other things in between, you know, it's like psychological, uh, psychological, spiritual, it was like all these different aspects push you to a level that you don't even hit during a hundred miles that like, I, I was hoping maybe I figured out enough of those other things that are not obvious that most other people never go the steep on and somehow it'll carry me through. And so that's kind of how I got to the race, to the start of it. And what are some um, things like you talked about you doing these little things? Did you get a tiny bit better? And you said you did a bunch from, do you have an example of like maybe just a few of specific things you did? Yeah. So like a lot of what I did, like one of the big categories was around the psychology. So like something that I run into it, like basically every 24 hour I've ever done prior to this one and a lot of hundred mile milers is like, I call it my dark place, but you know, that state you get into when like things start going wrong and like, you just kind of get grumpy and like your body hurts. And there's like things that maybe you could do if you were starting out fresh to figure it out and like problem solve and make things a little better. Like, oh, I should probably put on more clothes because I'm getting cold or I should probably stretch this muscle or massage it out or I should take electrolytes or I should be drinking more often than I am. Like those little, or I should use lube. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. Like all, all those things. And like, once I go into my dark place, which like when I was describing the race in 2020, like when I stopped, like my crew was trying to help me. They're like, yeah, let's like your quads are having problems. Let's put some like tights on you to keep them warm. And I'm like grumbling and just, I'm like, no, the race is done. You know, like refuse to even accept help and much less being able to do it myself. So like that was one area where I'm like, I have to work on the psychology of how I handle tough points and races. And Uh, I I actually saw a sports psychologist and did a session to talk through that and some other things and like came up with a few different approaches to stay in a better place. I did a bunch of reading uh, from like sports psychology books to come up with more ideas. And then I like my coach and I like kind of tried to recreate that situation in a 24 hour I did last May. And sure enough, at like 18 hours, like clockwork, I went to that dark place and I started just deploying a number of the different things. And there was one in particular that clicked, which was, uh, it was the psycho, like the book that I read was describing this process when there's like something that like you hate, it's like the worst, like he was using a tennis player as an example, who was terrible at like closing matches when you get in these like tiebreakers of some sort, whatever that is in tennis. And this person was terrible at it. And so like, basically the psychologist told him to just tell himself every morning, every night, 10 times and write it on a post-it note on their mirror that like, I love getting into tiebreakers. And the person's like, that's ridiculous. I'll do it, but that's ridiculous. And so this tennis player, he did that every morning, every night for weeks. And he's like, I don't think it's working. I don't feel any better until the next time he got in a tiebreaker. And then he felt himself saying, I think I can beat this guy. And then every time he got into more, he started finding himself saying, I want to get this person into a tiebreaker because then I can beat them. And so that like self reinforcement over and over seemed to work. And so when I went to the dark place, I just kept telling myself over and over again, like a mantra as I'm running, I'm just like, I love all the pain and discomfort at the end of a 24 hour over and over again for, it took like 10 or it was like 10 or 15 minutes. And then all of a sudden it just clicked. It was like a light switch. 
And I popped right back into like a positive mindset and I didn't feel any better. Like everything else, everything sucked (laughs) and I was hurting and tired, uh, except I could think clearly. And then suddenly like actually the hour or two before that people at the race that knew me were trying to help because they could see I was struggling and I'd ignored them. Like I always did. And suddenly I'm like, okay, let's try to figure this out. And I started doing things to help myself. And so ever since then, like, I just keep using that tactic whenever I need it. And it keeps me in a more and more positive place, no matter how tough things get. That's fascinating. I mean, one of the things that made you a better ultra runner had nothing to do with actual running. I mean, not, not, not actually moving your feet. It was all under the hat. Yep. It's remarkable. Wow. But you get a guy, I mean, you know, we talk about greatness and you, you, you have these guys that are like super hard workers and then, you, you know, every detail. Then you got guys that are like insanely talented. Then you get guys like Nick who are insanely talented and then put in that work. I mean, to, to be this guy, to run those kind of distances and times and then looking for these little improvements along the way, you know, for anybody watching and listening, you want to know what it takes to even think about these kind of dreams. Start there. Right. No, I mean, no stone is left unturned, man. That's a fascinating approach to it. And I love the way that it translated. I mean, you had an opportunity to see how it worked and, and it did. What, what more reinforcement could you want? That's amazing. I love that story. Should we get into the actual race, the 24 hour, the American yeah. record? Let's do it. Let's do it. So you started out, what time did the race start? Starts 8 a.m. And was your strategy just to like negative, was negative split like your go-to? Like, did you have the American record? Like, like that's what was the goal for the day? Yeah. So even then, like, as I went through it, like I wanted a plan that assuming that I really had no business going after it, even if like my, I totally blew up as a result of going after something too ambitious, I still had options. So I I charted out a pace where the first eight hours I was doing something like eight thirty pace. It was two Oh six laps. Uh, so it was a 228, 230 pace for eight hours. And then I would get one second a lap faster every four hours until the finish. And that would put me uh, exactly at the American record, like 0. 0.0 something over it. And so that, and then that, that way, if, if I had, you know, it, the starting pace was something like 170 flat or like 170 point something. And so again, like, let's say I had a bad day, but not too bad you know, maybe, maybe I dip down and I still run, you know, 166, 168. Uh, so that, that, the idea with it there is not only the negative split do I think was the best, but then I also have options if it's not, I estimated my ability wrong. Um, so yeah, the first eight hours, uh, for me, it's like, I call it the pre pre race, uh, because I, I joke that the race doesn't start till 16 hours in that that's where all the interesting things happen. And so, uh, eight hours in is still, you know, like eight hours in the pre-race starts because you're not even nearly to 16. And so the beginning to eight hours is the pre pre race. And during that time, everyone else is going out fast. Uh, it's six hours in, I was in 13th place. I, I don't care at all. Like everyone else in that race was pretty irrelevant to me. Like one interesting thing about 24 hours in particular, and even desert solstice in particular is how hard people crash. And, you know, at this race, people are so elite and going after such big performances that once things go wrong, they tend to go really wrong. And especially on a track where it's completely consistent and just relentless. Like once the tiniest little muscle starts feeling off, it gets tired, like on a trail or even on a road, like there's going to be cambers, there's going to be slight variations up and down, but the track, it's nothing. It's Half of it's a curve and half of it's a straight and they're exactly the same every single lap. And so, yeah, like people will try to push through and sometimes you just can't push through and there's nothing you can do and muscles stop functioning. Uh, and you know, even if it happens 14 or 16 hours in the the race, that's eight or 10 hours that you now have to try to hold on, uh, which sometimes is more than you can do. Yeah. A long time. So, so early on, I don't even think about anyone else because no matter how far they are ahead, 
like they're all pretty much going to come back. And if they don't like good for them, then I still have no reason to worry about them. And so, yeah, I just, the, the first eight hours are pretty clockwork for me where just regular nutrition, uh, it gets a little bit warm, actually, like the temperature isn't too bad, but the, the direct sun and the like humidity being so low in Phoenix, you feel okay, but you're being baked and you're being dehydrated. So I spent a lot of time focusing on that. I'm constantly drenching myself with ice water. Uh, I would take shirts. So I, I use uh, like these rabbit perforated shirts that are great in heat. And I had two of them and my crew was dunking them in a cooler of ice to try to freeze the shirt itself. And then I'd swap it maybe every 20 minutes so that I get kind of like an ice vest, uh, but without the weight of it. And, you know, doing all of that, uh, was keeping me cool. Even talking about the little things, I was trying to invent more things during the race. I realized as much as I was cooling my arms and my torso, uh, my legs are, were pretty warm and, you know, like anything, I'm worried about the quads and the hamstrings, which are where I have my issues. And it, it suddenly occurred to me, like those are overheating like any one or any other muscle group could. So I started splashing water on those uh, all afternoon, basically. And I think that actually made a pretty big difference too. Like every time I did it, they felt a little more refreshed, a little, little less tired. And I think it led to them holding on for the whole race as well. You, you said normal nutrition for those first eight hours. What does that entail for you? For me, it's, uh, I did smoothies as my biggest source of calories. One of the problems I have in long races is if I do too much straight sugar, like gels or sports drinks, like I get that, like, I just kind of get sick of it and then like nothing sounds good. And then on the other side, you do too much solid food and then like, it just doesn't digest very quick. It ends up sitting in your stomach. So smoothies have come to be my go-to because they're in the middle, they go down easy, but they're also a little more substantial than just, you know, straight sugar. Uh, although I'll get to this later in the race, it ended up causing a problem and I have to figure out something new. Uh, but I did that. I was doing some granola bars. I was doing some pita hummus, avocado, like little wrap sandwiches. And then I do Vespa, which is a, a, like an amino acid supplement that increases fat burning so that you can just, you pull a little more calories per hour from fat and then have to eat a little bit less. And you're doing all this at like an 820 mile around the track. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No big deal. Yeah. No big deal. <laughs> All right. So after the first eight, then you're what, I guess from eight to 16, is that the pre-race? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, uh, what is that? That's 4 PM. So it's the heat's waning probably about five as the sun goes down. Uh, you start hitting better and better temperatures going into the night. Uh, and it hasn't gotten too cold. So actually like eight to 16, it's kind of the same thing, uh, in terms of my strategy, just slowly, ticking down the pace ever so slightly faster. Uh, the bigger difference other than just, yeah, the sun going down and the, the track lights turn on is that's when I'd say the significant carnage starts. You see more, a few people starting to drop, but a lot more people slowing paces. And so it starts flip-flopping from all these people ahead of me that were going faster than me to sometime in that middle section, I started becoming either the fastest person on the track, or there's only one or two people that are going a similar pace. And then I start pa passing people more and more. I start passing faster and faster as that time goes on. And, uh, it, let's see, towards the end of it, you start hitting hundred mile splits. So like David Laney hit hundred miles first, cause he was only going for that. He ran something like 1232, I think. Uh, and then, yeah, like, uh, I think well, Arlen Glick, he hit it ahead of me. And then I was catching Jake Jackson when we both hit it right at 14 hours. So yeah, like eight hours to 14 or so again, for me, just clockwork, um, mostly nothing different, except I started having issues from the smoothies, which it were like bathroom breaks, I'd say, but it was like, gas where you don't you can't trust the fart yeah yeah <laughs> don't, yeah don't trust it <laughs> yeah so I, I was having to make a lot more stops of the porta potty and they were very quick because they they were mostly just that but they it was like 
occasionally it was a little more. And so I couldn't completely skip it. Uh, and so sometime in there, I started wasting 20 seconds a lap, probably twice an hour because of that. And like the bigger problem too, was just like, there's a lot of pressure kind of down in the gut area. And so like trying to hold my pace and be relaxed and smooth and comfortable while feeling gastrointestinal problems was not very fun. And I'd hit minor versions of this in previous races, but it seemed like it would maybe be there for a couple hours and then resolve itself. And so I don't know if it's the faster pace or just, you know, our bodies change over time. Uh, but it gave me problems just about to the end of the race. So yeah, that, that started about 10 hours and it got progressively worse. And then, uh, once James started crewing me, he, that this is one of the things where I said he started problem solving and, he started like my wife who'd been crewing me when it started, she actually, she was on the phone with her mom, her mom's a nutritionist. They were getting like the, the right, uh, like over the counter, like it was just, like gas X or something. And then like warm liquids and some other things. And like, she was trying a bunch of stuff and it was helping some, but not enough. And then James got on and he started feeding me like dry toast and some other things to try to soak up the liquid. And like each of these things, definitely seemed to help. And this, you know, again, it kind of loops in the, like, I was actually in a state to problem solve and work together with them and be proactive. And so it did get, even though it went on for the rest of the race, it got less and less frequent and less and less intense. Uh, and so I think that's something that easily could have derailed me, you know, when, when I'm dealing with essentially zero buffer for the whole race, like I was worried about, could one single thing go wrong and throw me off? And it turns out probably exactly one thing could go wrong because it did. Uh, but I was able to manage that and like just about everything else seemed to go right. Um, would you, would you say it's fair to say that the way you handled that whole situation in this race in 21 was vastly different after having that conversation with the sports psychologist and, and making that one part of your game just that much better. Do you think that was key to that? Yeah, definitely. Because like any time in the past and even just watching a lot of other runners and how they handle a lot of this, I think usually one of two things happen. Like in my case, I try to keep moving at all costs, but then because I'm moving, like I'm not really dealing with things sufficiently or the other case, which I saw a lot of runners doing at solstice is they stop to try to work things out and then you're losing time. And that time is incredibly tough to make back. You know, you stop for one minute, you now have to run, one hour, two seconds, a lap faster, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it feels like a lot out there and it can put you over the edge. Yeah, uh, so I didn't have to slow down and yet I was still able to be problem solving the whole time, basically. That's powerful too. That's a powerful tool to be able to harness. Yeah. So let's see. Yeah. So that gets me into about 16 hours, which is where I say the race starts. And yeah, at that point it's midnight and you know, that tends to be the toughest point. Like from there on, it starts getting actually pretty chilly. Like everyone else was bundled up. I put on arm sleeves and gloves and I actually pulled the arm sleeves down. They were just kind of dangling halfway up my arm. And I never needed more than that the whole night because I was just moving like faster and faster and better and better. So like with these unexpected stops, like I was supposed to be running 202 to 203 laps and i was doing a ton of laps that were like two minutes 159 in there uh because i was like i felt this even though i felt you know i've been running for 16 hours the last eight i felt the smoothest of the entire race and like other people telling me basically said the same thing and like my stride wasn't falling apart it wasn't like getting you know choppy and slow together or anything like that like I was running, feeling more in flow than I had the entire race up to that point. Uh, at the same time, I remember thinking it, a couple things at like eight hours and then four hours. I thought like on the one hand, I actually have a shot at this thing because I feel like I have enough left for this. And on the other hand, like I know how quickly this can go down, like any given step it could all just fall apart. And so I still can't take any of it for granted. Like I can't allow myself to get excited about it because, you know, you get excited and then you start losing track of things. So I, I kind of had to force myself to repress 
anything I was feeling and not think ahead into the future and still just stay in every moment on every lap and keep doing all the things I'd done like clockwork for 16 hours. And the other thing I started finding myself thinking is I have multiple gears left that I'm not using. Meaning like if I had to go sprint right now, I could do it and probably feel good doing it. And that that's counteracted by the thing I said before, meaning like I thought about going multiple times leading up, you know, maybe two hours to go give a big kick, really see what I can do. And every time I had to remind myself, like it could all go away. And if I, if I, you know, pull something two hours to go, or even a muscle just stops working, you know, it works 90% as well as it's working right now. And I, I lose, like, I, I, at that point, I was like, you're still, you know, 0.5 seconds per lap slow of the record. You actually, you can't even just maintain, you actually have to keep speeding up to be able to hit 172 and a half. And so I kept reminding myself of that to keep myself, you know, keeping care, keeping track of everything, taking care of everything, still just being disciplined. Like really it was no different than the first 16. I just kept eating. I kept managing. I kept watching for things that were wrong to try to address them and get them right. And so, yeah, like the last eight hours are almost the same as the first eight and the middle eight, because it, other than the slight increase in speed and having to troubleshoot a few things here and there, uh, like I pretty much did the exact same thing just about to the end. And like the last hour, the sun came up, like it was clear that like, I, I think it by that point, the last hour I was at the right pace, meaning I didn't technically have to speed up anymore. I just had to maintain, uh, but same thing. Like if I, like if my legs seized up and I fall over onto the track, I can't crawl the, you know, the, the right pace to get there. And so it wasn't until I hit, I got onto the lap where I would actually break the record that I sped up at all. And I think there were like, what, four and a half minutes to go at that point. And so I started running six minute miles through the record. I had three minutes left when I, yeah, 2357 is when I crossed the record line and actually broke it. And then I put two more laps to hit 173. And six minute miles at the end of 173 miles. I, I don't know if that's, I think not speeding up until that last lap might even have been harder. That had to have been brutal mentally. You just want to go, right? I want to bank this a little bit. It, it was, yeah. Cause, and they, you can do the, the math and you're like, there's nothing to really bank. Like I, I can maybe get a tiny bit ahead, but I, I'm going to hit it with six minutes to go instead of four minutes to go or something, you know? Uh, and so yeah, you choose worth the squeeze, right? I yeah, mean, it's going to look heroic, but what's not going to look heroic is if you miss the record by three minutes because of it or something. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You definitely did it right. Yeah. So did, I mean, it, did you, did you feel in your head that you had it at any time prior to that last lap or did no, you allow yourself to feel that way? I, I like, I didn't allow myself to feel that way. I, I let myself start feeling excited about half an hour to go. Until then, like, I, I didn't want to get ahead of myself, you know, 24 hours is a race of patience. And like, I have seen people fall apart, like both so late in the race and so big that I actually kept imagining the, the, the bad scenario to keep myself from like wanting to go any faster is I just kept thinking like, I have, go- I have gone from flying high to barely able to walk in a period of 20 minutes, there's more than 20 minutes left in this race. And that that's really what motivated me to like, not even toy with any of that. It's an extraordinary patience though. We're talking about a 24 hour race and you're patient for 23 and a half of those hours. That's, this that's one, this extraordinary. One. Yeah. The discipline remarkable. What, what was your uh, average mile per pace? What did that, what does that turn out to for 173? 8.19. Yeah, eight nineteen for twenty four hours. Twenty four hours, yeah, nonstop. So that's remarkable. Congratulations, man. I mean, seriously, that's a congrats. That's a a number and a feat that's you know hard to even comprehend. 
Yeah, I, I, I say this all the time, like as many times as I've run 100 miles, run 24 hours, you know, run 155, now run 173. I also still cannot wrap my head around running that far. Yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. Um, I hate to say this, but Hard Rock, is that, is that, the, is that the, when we say what's next, is it Hard Rock? Yeah. And when is that? It's July. Okay. So how long of a training block do you have for something like that? Are you already in it? Not yet. So one thing, like one rule I've learned for myself is I can't plan any major races past my goal race with the exception of something like hard rock where you have no choice because you have to apply. Um, and even then I treat it as if I'm not into it at this point until I'm recovered and healthy because 24 hours can take you down so hard that like you can't have an agenda. Like my recovery is maybe just as, I don't know. It's not just as interesting, but it is interesting in that like I finished the race and I felt good meaning like someone gave me a chair and like they almost made me sit in it. And then like two minutes later, I'm like, I kind of actually want to stand up. <laughs> uh, and I was walking around fine and I looked good. And then I went home and then went through like the, the normal hundred plus mile post race where like you're wired for four hours. Cause you took so much caffeine at the end of the race. And then you crash hard for four hours and then you wake up wired at 2 a.m. And then you like repeat for two days straight like, and your body is just confused. Uh, but that like evening when I woke up from the first time I fell asleep, uh, I suddenly could like not walk properly. And I was on crutches for like two days after that, three days after that. <laughs> because it felt like it felt like I had broken my leg. Like it was the sensation that there was a big stress fracture in it. And I didn't assume that that was the case, but there was something really wrong with the muscles. And I actually, I went and got dry needled and that got me off the crutches, but it still didn't feel right. And we're now like four and a half weeks after we're a month after. And I'm still like, I'm jogging like three to four miles some days and still kind of limping out there. So I've been working on it. I'm like scraping 20 to 30 minutes every day with like metal massage tools. I just got dry needled again and I'm still like, not even to like just fun, easy running. It's like, I try to do an easy run and I'm still in pain. So I can't start training until I have like a, a solid couple weeks of at least, you know, back to health, uh, which is not surprising. Like I, I would do it all over again. Like that's clearly worth it. Uh, but now it's back to like, be patient and don't go overdo it for a while and enjoy the break. Like I've, I've been training so hard for so long. Like, uh, I've, I've needed a downtime and this is the time to take it. So I'm also soaking that up, you know, doing all the, uh, you know, social drinking and pizza and ice cream and all those other things that, you know, I normally can do like a couple times a year kind of a thing. Cause it's, I've got a big long run the next day. And now I can enjoy myself for a while. So I've been soaking that in. Good for you, man. You earned that for sure. How much time would you need for hard rock? I mean, if, if you're in it, what what's sufficient for you to get prepared? Uh, I like much longer buildups if I can get them. Like, yeah, if I was healthy, I don't know if I'd be training hard now, but I'd be probably starting to ramp up again, at least at a moderate level. Like, I love having a year to build up for a race. And at this point, I mean, it's, it's all relative because I've had multiple years of building up. So I'm really just building on top, but I guess I'd say the big training block starts something like three or four months out where I'll probably try to put in two or three really big key months, you know, a, a peak month where I'm hitting multiple like 130 to 150 mile weeks. And then that, that should be maybe six weeks out, like finishing six to six weeks out, five weeks out, something like that. And how long of a taper would you have? Usually something like two weeks where like three weeks out is probably a hundred mile week, but starting to back off on anything too risky two weeks out, I'll drop down to 70 or 80. And then the week of, I dropped to almost zero. It's like a token like a bunch of off days, a token couple runs just to keep circulation going and not get too stale. Mm -hmm. You hear that, Paul? I heard it, man. <laughs> Taper down, man. That's right. Listen, listen to the legend. Taper down. 
that that's that's for the big races the the other like the going back to the negative splitting stuff that's actually something that i did a lot this year is the opposite where i did tons of training races and i basically didn't taper for almost any of them unless they were a hundred miler um because the negative splitting also seems to help with recovery quite a bit and a lot of the races i would do kind of a, a notch or two down from a normal race too and just go have fun you know enjoy being out there, checking out new trails, all that stuff. So I don't do that for every race. Uh, I actually think it helps that I don't do that because I get more training volume while still being able to test a lot of things in races. I, that's a lot of where I had my like testing grounds for these, a bunch of these other changes that I was doing and like improvements I was trying to make where you put yourself into a race scenario and you can try things that are hard to simulate in training. Um, and so like I'll do the same thing in my build up the hard rock. I'll go run a bunch of races. They'll all be kind of B races, C races. And then I'll try to do the things that I think, uh, that simulate, uh, the key parts of the race. So like the 24 hour, some of the simulations I was doing. So one of the big ones I was doing was the whole quad thing, you know, my quads blow up, but it does, they don't blow up till 18 hours. How do I simulate that? And so, like my coach and I, we would set up these scenarios where like two days before a 50 mile trail race, I would go just like hammer a spin bike workout to just destroy my quads. And then maybe <laughs> I might've done a speed work the day before that. Uh, and then I'd go to this 50 mile race just with my quads feeling totally beat up and then like run the race easy, you know, really careful not to hurt myself. But it, it's like, this feels like I would probably feel <laughs> you know, 14 hours, 16 hours into a 24 hour quad wise. And I, I, I think it was a little risky, but I have enough experience to do it the right way. And like, I swear that those were the biggest keys that kept my quads. Like I had no issues with the quads, the whole race. I love the attention to detail. It's, it's everywhere. I told you, like there, there were so many little things that I worked on and I, I, I don't think any single one was the key. I think it was all together. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we've seen the, the, probably the poster, the, the, the key to small steps where it shows the guy with the ladder and the rungs are real close together and he's all the way to the top. And the other guy, the rungs are super far apart and you can't even reach the first one. So all those little tiny things, man, but that adds up to a, an American record. Yep. It, it seems what, so. <laughs> what's the world record? Way more. Uh, that was also broken last year. It, uh, it, the previous record was 188 and the new record is 192. 192. Who holds that? Uh, Alexander Sorokin. Let's go get him. Yeah. People ask me that. And like, that is like, unlike me saying the American record was most likely beyond me, like there is not, you know, 19 more miles to find somewhere. Um, certainly I think I can improve over the 173 if I decide to train hard again for that race. Um, but 192 is several levels beyond that. There's, there's very few people who can like both have the like required talent and the required hard work and the required like smart work, I'd say to, to be able to go after something like that. You know, I, I do think a lot more should be higher up there. And like, actually that's one of my big hopes for setting this record is inspire some more people to really give it a serious go and figure out the 24 hour. I think we see a lot of really inspiring performances, even at hundred miles, especially at trail races and things like that. Um, but even the, the faster hundred miles, we're seeing more and more of those. Uh, I hope the energy comes across to 24 hours. Cause I think, you know, even just, you know, cheering for our hometown Americans, uh, we could see a lot running the one eighties and even the one nineties. And if you're in it, the thing's going to come down to the last hundred meters. So that's pretty yeah. exciting too. I mean, this thing, this thing's going to go to 200, isn't it? I mean, if they just hit 192, that's going to hit 200. It, it should definitely go to 200. I, I don't know if it'll take a long time or a short time. I, I think we need more kind of pressure, like the marathon, meaning like, I, I hope that the sport attracts more sponsorships that let people seriously go after it. Like even Alexander Sorokin, he's from Lithuania and he showed up on the scene, like he was getting better and better. He had run like a 170, I think it was a 173, 24 hour, a couple years ago at the world championships. Uh, but then people really started noticing him when he broke Zach Bitter's hundred mile record. Uh, Zach had run 1119 and he ran 1114 
I think it was in, was it 2020? Uh, actually, no, it was earlier. It was early 2021. Uh, and so that, that's when people like, oh, who is this guy? Because he's now breaking world records. And then he came and broke the 24-hour record, which was Giannis Kuros's, which is a big deal because Giannis Kuros's records, especially that one, were kind of considered unbreakable. Like it's going to take a long time for people to break it. And then he just came back uh, actually this past weekend and rebroke his 100-mile record uh, by about, yeah, about 25 minutes. Like 10.51 or something? Yeah. And even that's, it, it's actually faster than that because that was, that was the next complete lap. Uh, it wasn't even the hundred mile split. And so he was probably a couple minutes faster than that. Wow. So he's the hundred mile uh, speed record holder and the 24 hour distance record holder. Yep. In the world. Yeah. And he really started being able to do that. He uh, I was reading some, or like watching some interviews with him and I guess he trained up and was able to do the first couple records because with COVID he worked at a casino and they sent him her own home because casinos weren't open during COVID. And so he got to train full time. And then after he set the 24 hour record, he got picked up by Nike, which doesn't usually happen for ultra runners. Like Nike doesn't really sponsor ultra runners. And so now he's full time sponsored, supported and he came back and blew away the hundred mile record. So that's the kind of thing I think it'll take to see these records go further is get more guys who can actually dedicate full time rather than, you know, working a job plus trying to train plus trying to piece together all the support you need. Yeah. That 24 hour world championship needs more, needs more publicity. I mean, it needs attention it needs to be watched. Yeah. And it's really like the IAU who puts it on, they kind of have a rough track record of kind of managing things in general. Like they used to put it on every single year and then they went to every other year because they just couldn't get like, it kept getting canceled because either they couldn't get it to work or the host country couldn't get it to work. So like, yeah, they're, they're not doing the best job stewarding it from what I've seen. Um, but it, the race itself is pretty exciting. I've gone to a couple of them. So. Yeah. Uh, you participated in one. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh, I, I and then even the, when I got bumped from the team, I actually still went and I, I ran as an alternate, which just means I got a result, but I couldn't score points for the team. Okay. But I still got to be out there watching. Actually, that's one of the things that really talking about exciting races, uh, like late in the race, like the U S team was battling a couple other teams. And so, you know, you've got your top three of six men and top three of six women score. And so you're all working together, like kind of like you'd think of like a cross country team and a cross country meet where you, you need your teammates to do well because you're combining your scores. And it's the same thing at the world championships is they take the top three distances and add them up. And so you see the other countries, you see where you're at and like, you're trying to get distance on them. They're trying to get distance on you. Uh, and it's just like awesome to see that, that it's, it's beyond an individual thing. It's a team thing, but then it's also a country thing. Yeah, that absolutely needs to be get a lot more publicity and marketing than it is because that's that's a riot, man. That, that, there's some viewers for that. Yeah, man, fascinating story, Nick. I love talking to you. I mean, learned a lot. Wasn't expecting to learn so much tonight, but I feel like I've learned a lot. Now, will I apply any of it? That's if you know me, and not at all. But I learned <laughs> a lot tonight. <laughs> yes, thanks for joining us, Nick. Yeah. No, it's uh, great to talk to you both. It's uh, it's still fun to relive it. I guess that means it's that's a good thing. Absolutely. I hope it. I hope it never gets old. Yep. Can't thank you enough for joining us. Congratulations on an accomplishment that's you know beyond comprehension, man. Just an incredible, incredible feat. Um, love to hear the story and how you got to, to how you got there. It's a lot of fun tonight. Thanks for joining us. Yes. Thank you, Nick. Was that episode ten? Nick Curry. Nick Curry.